We began a, com- a conversation last week underneath the, the title. The big, the big header of this series we've been in is called This Side of Heaven. How many of you have got something so far out of, the, out of this series? Um, and then last week we started a conversation called Capturing a Cloud, which needed to be broken into two parts. So if you haven't heard part one, uh, make sure that you get onto our YouTube and you can find it there. Um, we'd love for you to be able to just kind of go in reverse with everything. But we're going to continue on today uh, with the second part um, of this, of this message. And what I want to try to do is just catch some of us up. Maybe if you didn't capture this, this message last week, we started in James chapter four, verses 13 through to 17. And it says this, it'll be on the screen or we'd love for you to turn to it in your Bible. It says this, come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we go into such and such a town and spend a year there and try to make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. How many of you know that to be true right now? We don't, we don't know what tomorrow will bring. And then this pointed question, powerful question, for all the existential people in the house, what is your life? What's it about? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Come on, everybody say poof. <laughs> Some of you went with it. That's awesome. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. So we, we kicked off this idea last week. My, my daughter asked me on an airplane about a month ago as we, were, as we were flying into Seattle. We were going through the clouds, and she asked me, Dad, can you capture a cloud? To which I went and did the research, and the answer is yes for a nanosecond. And then, as Paul describes to us, it's, it's, here, you got it in a jar, and then gone. It's just water vapor, condensation on the side of a jar. And Paul, or, and Paul, or James is submitting to us this reality that, hey, listen, your life, my life, is a vapor. It's here one moment and, and gone the next. And so we started this conversation about what it looks like to try to capture the cloud of our life. And for many of us, we, we kind of submitted last week, for many of us, that's what we're running around trying to do right now is, is capturing the cloud of our life. We're trying to, to control it and, and work with it and, and make it something instead of realizing that at the end of the day, we don't know what tomorrow will bring and that God is the source for our life. And we go where he wills, like a cloud in the sky, moved along with the breeze, our life is such and for many of us, we're stressed out, we're, we're ridden with anxiety, we're, we're, we're fearful because we are searching for this thing called control. Come on, how many of you agree with me this morning? We don't have it. I don't have control. I'm realizing that right now, and being somebody who, who likes degrees of control and likes to have things in order and, and so on and so forth, right now in this construction zone that we are in known as church and my own personal home right now, I have no control and I'm losing my mind. Dust is everywhere, right? Projects, come on somebody, can I just vent for a second? <laughs> Projects, that they're gonna, it's, gonna be, it's gonna take this long, and then it's gonna take this long, and then it's gonna take this long. Come on, I have no control. Right. And I'm realizing that about life right now, I've got no control, oh, oh, and we work, don't we? We work so hard for control. To keep it all together and to manage it and to, to mitigate disaster and mitigate the things that we don't want to happen. Oh, we work really, really hard at it, but James is offering this truth, albeit probably not the most positive of truths, but a truth all the same. What is our life? And we've got to realize you and I do not have control over it. 
And so we began a conversation last week of what does it look like to try to capture this cloud? What do, what do we do and how do we, how do we work at better organizing our life in such a way that doesn't try to manage and control everything but trusts God in the midst of our daily lives? And so I just wanna finish that conversation today and then we're gonna, we're gonna work into some different territory over the next few weeks in the month of September and then we're gonna start a brand new series in the month of October called Defense Against the Dark Arts. Um, and we're gonna walk through First and Second Timothy together. And it's gonna be a powerful, powerful um, series that I believe, uh, and don't, I'd say the title, but it's not what you think it's gonna be. So I'll just kinda leave that out there as a cliffhanger. But, um, but we've got some subject matter that we still wanna carry on with here in, in, this, uh, in this series. So what I wanna do is I wanna just go over the last two truths that are important for us concerning life as a, as a vapor that we must understand. Does that work with everybody today? All right, I need your help every shot number one. Here's the, well, technically this is number three in the four, but one today. Okay, cool. Here's the, here's the truth I want to grab a hold of today. We must collaborate with the complexity of life. We must collaborate with the complexity of life. How many of you would agree with me right now? Show of hands. Life is complex. Right? It's complex. And have you ever noticed that one of the biggest reasons that we are stressed and maxed out is because we tend to fight against the complexity of life? When things have nuance to it, when things are, are, are different than what we realize, when things are, are we, it's multi-layered and, and it's complex. We've said that a bunch to our kids lately. They're like, Dad, Mom, what about this? And we're like, it's complex. They're like, what does that even mean, right? But how many times have you found yourself saying that about life? It's, it's complex. We must learn to collaborate with the complexity of life. And many of us are frustrated because we're being so rigid. Come on, where are all my rigid people at? You won't raise your hand. Okay, a few of you, cool, thank you. So Ecclesiastes chapter three, verses one through eight says this. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. A time to be born and a, and a time to die. Some of you thought this was a Beatles song. Nope, Bible first. <laughs> time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. For some of us. <laughs> a time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. I want you to listen to this quote. Life is composed of joy and sorrow, building and destroying, living and dying. Each comes at the proper, come on, someone shout proper. At the proper time. This reminds us that we are creatures of time and not yet able to partake of the joys of eternity. No one can be happy who has not come to grips with the reality that life is full of changes and sorrows, <clears throat> as well as continuity and joy. We must accept that we are mortal and governed by time. Complexity is a part of all of our lives no matter who we are. It does not matter your background, your age, your ethnicity, sex, social status, economic reality. Time is, come on somebody, the great equalizer. It does not matter who you are today. 
you have the same amount of time as the person sitting next to you. Maybe put better this way, your vapor and their vapor is a vapor. Nobody can one-up another's vapor. Sure, maybe somebody's vapor could be 79 years and, and 82 years or, or 106 years, or, but it's still just a vapor in the scheme of eternity. Come on, somebody. You can live 150 years and it's still nothing compared to eternity. And so once we grapple with this reality, I believe in what the Bible is suggesting to us is that when we can grapple with our mortality, when we can understand that life is just a vapor and we get less rigid and we start to understand that God has so much for us to do and be a part of it, changes the way that we do the complexity of life. Here's the truth. Some of us probably need to wrestle with today. The nuance of complexity seems to be the breaking point for many of us when it comes to our faith in Jesus. Somehow, Many of us are jumping out of the car of our faith because it got complex. And I just want to suggest to us today that faith actually operates best in complexity. Come on, is the church with me today? Our faith actually operates best when things get complicated. Little pastor joke, blessed are the flexible for they shall not break. Right? in Jason Askeley's <laughs> chapter one. <laughs> I think about, I think this, what we've been through, it's been a difficult season. It's been, it's been complex and we're still in it. And I believe that for many of us, learning to be and be willing to collaborate with the complexity of life will save our lives. And I believe that this will set some of us free today is to learn this, let go. Come on, someone write that down. Turn to your neighbors and just say, let go. Come on, turn back to your neighbors and say, you let go. (laughs) See, complexity will always fight against our propensity towards control, always. And what Solomon's writing to us here in Ecclesiastes is that life is complex and it's nuanced and control is something that we lost when we started breathing. I remember when Eric and I first got married, we've been married for 16 years now and it's been awesome. But I'd be lying to you if I didn't say it's gotten more complex. Right, like the newlyweds in the house or like, so, like we've had 18 couples that are getting ready to get married over the next little while. All the, all the soon-to-be newlyweds and newlyweds in the house, your life is, is super just kind of like whatever right now. It's awesome. That's how it was for us when we, when we first, like, we could do what we wanted. There was no complexity to our life whatsoever. We could stay up late. We could, we could hang out. We could go at a whim. We could just take off and start driving. We could, we could vacation. Like, all, all those different things. And then all of a sudden, child. <laughs> right? And it destroyed everything. <laughs> <laughs> so it got a little complex, but we had this, this little man, and he could pretty much, for the most part, go with us. It was two on one. That's easy, right? We're doubled up on somebody, right? Two on one, we're good. And then we decided to have another one. Now it was two on two. We're playing one-on-one defense now, right? And things got a little bit more complex. We waited seven years between our second and then our third child, Eliana, seven years. And then one day we decided, 
after bad pizza <laughs> to have a third one. Guys, and life got complex. And then we've gotten older, and the church has grown, and our lives have grown, and things have expanded, and our relational circles have changed, and stuff started happening. And how many of you know that in 2018, 2019, things felt like we were just in a groove? Maybe you were there personally, and then all of a sudden, it got complex. We haven't, we haven't exited that place. I'm saying all those things just to help us realize that life is complex. There's, there's nuance to it. And I heard this quote, and I think it bears repeating because I think it's powerful. Many of us want to remove nuance. We want everything to be same. We want it to be straightforward. But the removal of nuance is actually tyranny. It's hyper-control that none of us want. We don't want nuance removed from our lives. What we're really asking is we want all the bad things removed from our lives. We want all the difficult things. We want all the things that are causing us to bend and, and shift removed from our lives. We want God to remove all the nuance of our lives, especially where it does not work with our desired reality, outcome, or disposition. But the truth is that our faith in God has to exist in the parameters. Come on, somebody, in the parameters of nuance. In each of the described realities of life that we read in Ecclesiastes 3, we are challenged to see the importance, relevance, and unique opportunity we have to experience God in it. And as your pastor, I just need to say that some of us are trying to experience God only in the good things of life, the easy things of life, the stable things of life. But the reality is, is that life is complex, nuance is taking place, and we've got to be the type of people that, according to Ecclesiastes chapter 3, can experience God in the complexity of life this side of heaven. I know, not a Caleb moment today. Too many people are placing their faith on the altar of ease. Meaning that we're seeing so many people give up on their faith because life, this side of heaven, has become difficult. And we have to remember that difficulty is part of the promise. Thank you, Jesus. That does not mean that God is absent or won't do great works in our midst. Can we just understand that right now in the complexity of life, just because it's hard in this moment doesn't mean that God is absent in this moment. That the degree of difficulty is not based on the nearness of God, but rather you and I have the distinct opportunity to realize that God is working with us even in difficult moments, even in hard moments. When you're sitting next to that person in the hospital bed, when the finances don't look the way that you wanted them to, when the marriage still isn't working out, when things are getting tough, when we're reading the things in the news, can I just say that God is not absent. He's actually right in the middle of it. But many of us have come to this black and white conclusion that if it's hard, God is gone. If it's good, God is here. But that's not the truth. And many people are giving up on their faith right now because things have gotten difficult. And that's actually when we are the nearest to God. The Bible tells us that God is close. He's near to the brokenhearted, to the crushed of spirit. That should be good news for us today. 
And the reason that we're walking through a series like this is because we got to do the heavy lifting right now, church. We've got to do the heavy lifting right now in this cultural moment, in this reality to say, no, 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 we've got to build faith that it can exist in hard things. Come on, is anybody with me today? <laughs> and I just got to tell you, like, as a, as a pastor and as a leader right now, as I'm digging into God's word, I was telling the team this uh, just two weeks ago with our staff, this thing is coming alive to me again in ways that I, like, I, I haven't dreamed of. And there's moments that I'm, I'm in God's word now and I'm seeing things differently because God is pressing on some things right now. Church, it is not time for us to be a church that backs out as things get difficult. It's not time for us as a church to kind of wane and waver in the middle of things. Uh Uh-uh, right now is the time where we strengthen our faith in the reality of hard and difficult things, knowing that God is with us no matter what. No matter what. So you gotta like loosen the grip. See, our attempt at control is really just our desire to remove complexity from our life. My house is under construction right now. We're living in a disaster. (laughs) And we've been living in it since May. So we were looking, like many of you have, we bought a house a while ago before everything started to go crazy in this state. And then we realized, how many of you guys have looked at like what you're, like for those of you who own own homes and you're like, oh, sweet. (laughs) And then you go like, then you do the path, right? You go down the journey and you're like, oh, okay, yeah, I I can make a lot of money in my house right now. And then you go look at what you can buy and you're like, oh, not so sweet. (laughs) So we went through that and then, so then we decided in the midst of everything that was going on in our life right now, we're like, hey. Let's remodel, because that's what sane people do. And so we decided to make that decision, and they ripped up our master bedroom, and they ripped up the bathroom, and they ripped up the other bathroom, and they threw a dumpster in our front lawn, and they started pulling things apart, and our house got stressful. One night I woke up with my eyes swollen because there was so much drywall dust, one day I jumped on my bed because I'm a playful person, and when I jumped, a plume of dust went boof. I was like, what is happening right now? And I kid you not, as I'm thinking, I'm complaining, I'm frustrated, and God checks my spirit. You ever, you ever have that moment where God just checks your spirit and he uses really strong words? These words were, how dare you? I was like, hmm. How dare you despise the miracle that you prayed for? Because it's complex. See, the funny thing is is that many of us want the miracle that we're asking God for in a perfectly packaged present. And then we despise the very thing that he's provided because it doesn't look the way that we wanted it. He's like, here you go. And you're like, "Mm mm-mm. Because that has tears attached to it. Come on, am I talking to anybody? You ever notice that sometimes God's greatest miracles in our life have pain attached to it? And so we've got to stop trying to be the type of people, especially as Christ followers, those of us who, who consider ourselves followers of Jesus in here, 
We've got to pull back from this idea that God's greatest miracle is seen in ease. And we've got to learn to dance with the complexity of life. You've got to move with it. You've got to sway with it. You've got to groove with it. Even if you don't have rhythm and timing, still, it may look janky, but work with it. You know what I'm saying? Because complexity is going to be there, and you just got to learn to to dance with. Could you imagine what the world would look like, especially if Christ followers decided we were going to stop whining and complaining about everything and decided to dance with the complexity and show Jesus' beauty and grace in the midst of all of that stuff? Got quiet in church today. So we've got to learn, collaborate with the complexity of life. Here's the second thing that we need to do if we're going to if we're going to stop trying to capture our cloud, what's the fourth thing? Is we have to deal, we must deal with what drives us. We must deal with what drives us. Okay, do you guys remember a couple weeks ago we talked about Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 through to 34. I'll read it again for us so that we can grab a hold of it. It says, therefore I tell you, this is Jesus speaking, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field and how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, don't be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all of these things. Okay, notice this word, seek. Ever shout, seek? Seek. Ever shout, seek? Seek. It's a word that gets overlooked in this portion of Scripture. We talked about worry a couple a couple weeks ago, but now I want to flip our perspective on this scripture. They seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek, come on, shall seek? seek? But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. So Jesus is not just dealing with worry in this portion of scripture, but he's also dealing with what drives us. He's dealing with what we are seeking after, what we are looking for, what we are desiring at the end of the day. It's what drives us. I've come to realize that there are two significant realities that drive us in life. There's many more that we could probably come up with, but when I say these, you might grab a hold of them pretty quick. Desire and despair. Those are our two main drivers, desire and despair. Of course, there are others, but these seem to be the largest contributors to what drives us. And if you think about it, almost every decision that we make is made from the place of desire or despair. We desire specific things. So so we worry about what we wear and what we will eat, and we despair, and therefore we worry about what we will eat or what we will drink. Both desire and despair are powerful drivers in our lives. Both desire and despair will cause us to make decisions that are irrational, destructive, and sinful. This is the part where the church gets super quiet. Come on. We're just talking Bible. I'll get to Scripture in just a second. Decisions of desire cause us to overlook things like our morals, our commitments, 
our responsibilities, our relationships, our faith. Have you ever walked through an eating plan with a health coach? Come on. Have you ever noticed that food that you don't even like looks good to you? I, like, I kid you not, as we work through an eating plan and as we've, we've tried to be healthy, there's things that I would never even think about. Desserts that are vegan in nature. I would never even think about them. Right? But all of a sudden you're like, oh my goodness, look at that cake made out of plastic. <laughs> Right? You see things and all of a sudden it's desire. And you desire certain things. Listen to what James chapter 1 verses 13 through to 15 says. This is a strong, strong language right here. No one undergoing a trial should say I'm being tempted by God. Since God is not tempted by evil and he himself doesn't tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desire. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. You know, many times we're blaming things on the devil and the devil didn't do it. Your desire did. Remember, couch all of this in this side of of heaven. What are are we talking about here? So many of us are trying to capture the cloud so we make decisions out of desire or despair. You see, there's a very complicated reality to this issue of desire because we tend to be a people that see desire, no matter what it is, as the greatest and most important aspect of our lives. We then villainize and demonize anything that gets in the way of our acquisition of it. See, the truth of Scripture is pretty clear when it comes to the desires that we have in this life. They are nothing in comparison to what God has for us. Come on, are are you all with me today? We've got, we've got to talk strong. We've got to work through Scripture because these are important things because I can tell you that I'm sitting in meetings where people have lit their life on fire in the name of desire. We've made decisions that have caused our lives to crumble in the name of despair. So the things that we desire in life, they're nothing in comparison to what God has for us. Sex, money, fame, popularity, prestige, influence, power. None of these add up to what Paul the Apostle would describe in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 19, as the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the mighty working of his strength. Jesus. And then watch what Paul would say in Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 through 11. He says, but everything that was gained to me. I have considered to be a loss because of Christ. More than that, I also consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, because of him I have suffered the loss of all things and consider them, here's this word, dung. For some of us, we're like, that's a dumb word. If you actually rendered this word down, he uses a word that I wouldn't necessarily repeat in church today. That's the power of this word, dung, right here. This is a strong four-letter word that Paul uses. It was offensive. So this is what Paul said. He said, because of him, because of Jesus, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I consider them nothing. I consider them rubbish. I don't care what everybody else has. I don't care what I see around me. I don't care about the desires that I have. I consider it all nothing so that I may gain Christ and be found in him. 
Not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that is through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God based on faith. My goal is to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, assuming that I will somehow reach the resurrection from among the dead. So here's the truth. Desire should always be submitted to God's design. Desire should always be submitted to God's design. But for many of us, we're running parallel to it. We're trying to have God's design but still run things through our desire. But then there's the other side of it. There's despair. And despair, it'll cause us to trust in half-truths, catchy sayings, and things that prey on our hope muscle. Things that should be exercised in light of who God is, not what the world or someone else promises. You see, the enemy of our soul, Satan, in fact knows that hope deferred makes the heart sick. And the promise that we have in Christ means that we have a hope like no other. Come on, somebody. And Paul tells us that our hope in Christ will not disappoint. But come on, isn't that what we're trying to really do in moments of despair? Is that we're making decisions to mitigate our disappointment. Come on. We have a tendency to rule our lives through this idea of, of man, I, I, I'm, I'm despairing here. I don't, I don't see where there's hope. And because I've lost hope, I start making decisions that do not line up with God's des- design and his desire for our lives. Because I'm trying to mitigate this thing called disappointment. Because all of us hate being disappointed. Disappointment ruins many of us. So that's what many of us are trying to do right now, is that we're trying to mitigate this idea of disappointment. But I want to offer you a third driver, which I, should, I believe should be the driving force of each of our lives, and that is design. Come on, someone shout design. design. You see, when we believe that there is no design behind our lives, then sheer desire or despair will drive us. But when we understand that our lives are the product of design. It changes the way that we do this side of heaven. See, design includes purpose and identity, reason, rhyme, foundation, and and truth. This is what our life should be patterned off of. And the reality is that many of us are trying to fight God's design. We're in an epic battle right now with our children. constant war between Erica and Jason's design and Shiloh and Justice's design. Eliana hasn't entered into the fray yet. She's getting there. And so every single day right now, and it's interesting because this is part of human nature, isn't it? Is that we just, we fight these things. And so we say, Justice and Shiloh, it's time to do this. Get up, move. We gotta get to school. This is the system, this is the design. Every single day, nothing changes in order to get us to school. But how many of you know, they never do what it is that's been designed. We talked about this. You you get up straight out of bed, you go to the bathroom, you get the dog, you take him outside, you feed him, you water him, let him run around, you go get dressed, you eat breakfast. You come back, you get the dog, you put him in his cage and we leave. But how many of you know he doesn't? Doesn't do that. He wanders the house. 
and I find him in a closet. What are you doing? I'm looking for something. What are you looking for? I'm looking for this car. Where's the dog? I don't know. What do you mean you don't know? I'm assuming he's where we left him. Do you not see the problem, son? And the interesting thing is, is that many of us do that with God. Because somehow, somewhere along the journey of life, we were convinced that his design is not as good as ours. And I wanna suggest the reason that we believe that is because we've been busy trying to capture our cloud. We've been trying to get it. For many of us right now, I know there's questions then popping off in our head. Well, what do we think about this? What do we think about this? We will answer those questions. But I need us to get to the place where we have to reckon with what do we believe about God and his design for our lives? That's the question we have to answer. Because if, if we don't see his design as the greatest authority in our lives, then we will constantly work at undermining it. I have to just let you know, straight out the gate, Jason Parrish, if I take off the pastor hat and I take off the leader hat and all the other hats that I wear, can I just tell you that Jason Parrish, as a Christ follower, I'm still that. Do you know that before anything else that I do, I'm a, I'm a Christ follower? I'm not a pastor first. I'm a Jesus follower first. So I don't believe what I believe because I've got to teach you about this thing. I believe what I believe because my life has been altered by it. I believe what I believe. And so when I read this, I just need you to know that I'm not just saying something because like, oh, I kind of halfway believe it and I think it's good for your life. Uh-uh. I just need you to know that this is the full authority for my life. Everything that I do, everything that I say, everything that I believe in is defined by this right here. There's not a philosophy in the world. There's not an ideology in the world. There's not a cultural moment in this world that will stop me from believing in his word. It is the final authority authority for my life. Why? Because I believe that he's made me and designed me and he's put all of this into motion. And so therefore, I submit my whole life to the counsel of his word. But if you don't believe that, I understand it. But I just got to say, it'll be a constant wrestling match. And I just decided that I stopped, I'm going to stop wrestling. I submit, I tap out. I tap out on his word. So everything in here, am I perfect at it? No. But am I trying? Yeah. I'm done capturing my cloud. If tomorrow my cloud ceases to exist, I hope I made an impact. But I've just decided, like Paul the Apostle would say, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. What I do this side of heaven is only preparation for eternity to come in Jesus' mighty name. Come on, in the church shouted.